All right, Matthew 5, we're carrying on in our Sermon on the Mount series. So Matthew 5, um, when you're meeting someone new or getting introduced to someone, you know, for the first time, you're, you're trying to figure out, okay, what's the best way to get to know somebody? What's the best way to talk about who I am? And when we do this, we tend to go like one of three routes or maybe all three, depending on your makeup. We talk about identity, we talk about responsibility, and we talk about authority. So I'll give you an example. When, when we think about identity, we kind of go deep. We go way back. So you may think about talking about where you're from. Um, one way is this, this plays out, and it's about time to pick on Texas again, is if you meet someone from Texas, guaranteed within the first breath, you will discover they are from Texas. It's like people that do CrossFit. Like, what's your name? I do CrossFit. Like, oh, okay. Like, seriously, like, my name's Bill. I'm from Texas. It's, I'm like, oh, I'm a Missourian. Like, nobody ever says that. Like, people are like, I'm ashamed I'm from Missouri. I don't know why. I just am but not, not Texans, right? Um, or I've, I've had this one a lot. Uh, where are you from? I'm from all over. Oh, why? Because I'm an army brat. Uh, that's, that's an identity that a lot of people have and, and tend to meet, meet folks like that. Um, but it would be weird, we answer that way because it would be weird to say I'm a Tennessee-born, Scotch-Irish, middle-class, Caucasian Christian. Like, cool, we're not gonna be friends. <laughs> like, that's basically how that's gonna play out. So most of us start with int- our introductions with responsibility, which means our work or what we do throughout the day to pass the time. Uh, so someone may say, my name's Jane, I'm an engineer. And then you're in that awkward space of like, well, I feel like if Jane were proud of where she worked, she would have told me, but so should I ask? And then does anybody else psych themselves out when you're meeting people? Like, am I digging too deep? What's your social? Like, I think maybe we've gone too far. Um, if they're from Eastman, they just tell you. So it's like, I don't know what kind of crazy engineer firm this is. Um, Other people respond, I'm a homemaker, a a girl dad, a lawyer, a scientist, a shepherd, like whatever, you never know. Um, Now, if you're really proud of where you work, you start with authority. So you can meet someone and they introduce themselves and they, oh, what do you do? I work at ETSU. That doesn't tell me what you do, but you tell me where you work. So you're proud, good. What do you do? I'm a professor. Of what? Like, are we playing guess who? Do you wear glasses? <laughs> like, what are we doing? Um, and so it could be uh, ETSU, I work for Ballad, you know, anything like that. Um, I have met, because of places we've lived, I've met people who answer that question simply by saying, I'm not at liberty to say, which is awesome. Uh, I, like, I just assume you're Jason Bourne. Like, that's, that's it. Like, no one's leaving that conversation going, you know what, I bet he's a dentist. I bet, he's, I bet he's working the bicuspids and he just, he can't talk about it. Like, no, that's, so that's one way to shut that down. But those are the lanes that we tend to go to to talk about who we are and to, to learn a little more about each other. And very early still in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to talk about the identity and the responsibility and the authority of his disciples. So he's gonna talk about who and what are followers of Jesus. Um, And he's going to go in these different lanes. And really to set up where we're headed over the next several weeks, because if you read on in the Sermon on the Mount, you start getting into all these topics that Jesus is going to talk about. And he's going to say, you've heard it said, but I say. And so to set that up, we're going to actually start at the end of our text today with authority and what Jesus has to say about the authority of the scripture and the authority of the interpreters of scripture in his in his day. So this is foundational and that's where we'll start. So picking up in verse 17, Jesus starts here because he's already being questioned about his identity. He's, people are wondering, does this guy just march to the beat of his own drum? So he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, which is a shorthand way of saying all of the Hebrew scriptures, which we would call the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 
For I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So even there, he makes it even shorter, the law. It's just all of the Old Testament. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches these commands will be called, be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then this is where he drops the hammer. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Whew. Never. And so there's at least two questions in that passage that we want to wrestle with and answer. One, what does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets? Not to abolish, but to fulfill. And then two, what in the world does he mean that our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Because Jesus, that sounds like a lot of righteousness and I'm not sure anyone is up to that. And so we're gonna explore these together. So first, fulfillment. Um, again, the, the whole of the Old Testament, you know, Jesus says, I came to fulfill this, which is a reminder for us that even as we read the New Testament, the first believers in the New Testament didn't have the New Testament. They were still reading and being guided by and taught the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish Bible. And so that's something important for us to remember. Jesus is giving these people handles by which they can gravitate and move forward in their walk with the Lord without being oppressed and held back by the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, which we'll see more of. And so Jesus says, I came to fulfill. That, that word simply means to fill up what is lacking. So if the jar is, can hold more water, you put more water in the jar. That's, that's all it means in its practical sense. Of course, there are tons of implications from that. Um, but Jesus says, basically, there's more to the law than what you have understood. There's more to it, and it's not all bad. And we know this has to be true because if you fast forward a few decades to the Apostle Paul, here's what he has to say to Timothy as Timothy is launching out in the church in Ephesus. He says, but we know that the law is what? Good, provided one uses it legitimately, which means there are illegitimate ways to use the law, which is what Jesus is actually going to address in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is building out how the fulfillment of the law works in using it legitimately. And the, one of the ways he fulfills the law, probably the most important, is that he's the fulfillment, the culmination of the overarching narrative of redemption that was, started being written in Genesis. Um, I love the way N.T. Wright says this. He says, when Jesus spoke of the scripture needing to be fulfilled, he was thinking of the entire storyline at last coming to fruition and of an entire world of hints and shadows now coming to plain statement and full light. If you were with us at all over the last couple of months, we spent a whole series going through this very thing, that Christ is on every page of the Old Testament. The, the rituals, the symbols, the ceremonies, the laws, the, the, the big stories that we think about, if you grew up in church, those were all pointing to the reality, the main point, which is Jesus. And so Jesus says, I've, I've come to talk to fulfill what's going on. And, and the beautiful thing is this includes the promises of God that have to do with the Messiah, that Israel had been waiting for forever. Now we know this side of history because of the scriptures that much of Israel missed it. They missed Jesus being the Messiah. But I love that the apostle Paul goes on later and he says that every promise of God is a yes in Jesus. So that in Jesus's life, death and resurrection, every promise that God has made for his people is a yes and an amen. It will happen and yet it's not all complete. 
So Jesus says there's more to come. That's why he says the scriptures aren't passing away. They're going to endure until this story of redemption is accomplished, but there's more of the story to be told. So it's going to be around for a while. Jesus sets this corrective course without completely tearing up the road in the process, which is an art. It's a skill that he models for us. So it's not about tossing everything out. Rather, in following the way of Jesus, our obedience to the law, our obedience to God's commands is no longer a duty, but a delight. And that's what I see as that fulfillment of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, their prophecies that God will write his law in our hearts so that we'll be motivated out of love to obey rather than feeling like it's a duty of something that we're trying to accomplish, which is still the burden that the Pharisees were hanging on to people. And so the New Testament itself says one of the surest signs that we love God is this in 1 John 5, 3. This is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. That wasn't always true. If you try to follow God's commands and it feels like a burden, you're not doing it within the vehicle of grace. You're trying to do it to earn. You're doing it for status. You're doing it for show. Whatever it may be, it's not in grace because of what God has already done for you. So this is that New Testament way of saying with the psalmist, my delight is in the law of the Lord. And so God is telling this story, this overarching story of redemption. We're finding fulfillment and culmination in Jesus. And now he's gonna say, here's how you are invited into the story. So this is the second part. How, does, how is it then that our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees? Because in these people's minds, the greatest in the kingdom certainly would be the scribes and the Pharisees. The teachers of the law, I mean, they're meticulously writing down commentary on the Hebrew scriptures. The Pharisees are the guardians. They get to decide what's emphasized, what's minimized, all for the purpose of control and power. And um, I imagine this for, for whatever reason, the way this landed for these, these first hearers in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I imagine it landed like a, one of my favorite scenes in the movie Dan in Real Life. Uh, where Steve Carell plays this character of Dan and he walks up on to his three nephews and they're skipping rocks into, the, into a bay, into the ocean. He says nothing. And so they just go about skipping rocks and he leaves the scene and he comes back into the shot running, carrying this giant rock and chucks it into the sea while he's yelling. And it makes this huge splash and his nephews just drop the rocks and look at him like, what's up with Dan? Like, what, what is going on? And, and that to me feels like what these people would have been looking around at each other going, why is he so angsty? Like, what is he talking about? Why? This untrained Jewish rabbi, carpenter, hybrid, like how can he have the audacity to say that our righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees? And this is what he's gonna spend the rest of the sermon on the Mount unpacking, is that surpassing righteousness is contrary to the external religiosity of the Pharisees and the scribes. That was the burden that was weighing people down. They decided which laws to emphasize and, and used them to their own advantage. One Methodist preacher said it like this. He said, this kind of religion will flourish as long as there are people who would rather feel certain than find truth. If you wanna feel certain, Pharisaical righteousness is good for you. But if you wanna be humble and open to truth, follow the way of Jesus. That's what Jesus is putting out here. Legalism and self-righteousness, why is it such an issue? Because when your certainty is your security, you will dismiss, you will label, you will cancel, you will judge, and you will write off those who do not agree with you. 
and they will become other in your eyes. That is what Jesus pushes against throughout this entire sermon. And so he's gonna emphasize that this, this true religion cuts deeper than what the Pharisees and scribes are offering you. It comes from an authentic motive and a pure heart that gladly submits to the authority of the scriptures because it's no burden for me to obey the one who I know loves me and the one who I know has obeyed the law himself. And so with this transformed heart, we're carried forward towards holiness and sanctification, not earning, not deserving, but reflecting what we've seen in Christ, appropriating ourselves to the authority to live out our identity and responsibility. And that's what we'll flesh out over the next several weeks. How you do that in relationships of all kinds, how you do that when you're in a public sphere, how you do that in prayer and so forth and so on. And we'll start that next week. But with the authority established, we go back now. What about this identity? What about our responsibility as followers of the way of Jesus? Um, If you missed last week, I would urge you to go back and listen. I know we say that a lot, but it really is foundational for understanding who Jesus is talking to. Matt did a great job laying out that these people, this crowd, they were not the uppity ups in culture. They were not movers and shakers. They were disparaged. They were despised. They were on the fringes, most of them. And it's to this bewildered crowd of beginning disciples that Jesus has the audacity to say, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And I just don't think anyone in that crowd's looking around going, you know what? (laughs) We are. I think they're going, you're insane. And so he's gonna flesh what this means out for us. So look at verse 13. He says, you, and that is emphatic, you, make no mistakes, it's you people, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So first, first note to take is the you is plural. You is plural. One grain of salt doesn't do a lot of good. You don't put like, you don't get your salt shaker out and be like, there's the one, throw it on your eggs, be like, delicious. No, like it takes all the salt together. Some of you are like, it takes too much salt. That's a problem. But, and so the same way that you're, one little light shining in a world of 7 billion people is not gonna make that big of an impact. But if all those who follow Christ are shining, then it's gonna make a difference. And so part of Jesus' point in this sermon is that we are being formed into a people together who can inhabit the citizen, the, the, be citizens of the kingdom of God. So this means faith is personal, but it's not private. Like your faith will always be personal to you, but it is not meant to end with you. It always goes out. And so what are we to make of this salt imagery? How does it uh, influence what we're to think here? We know that salt was very valuable in ancient times. The Greeks actually thought that salt was something divine in its nature. There was something divine about it, something that was of the gods. Um, And then the Romans uh, picked that up and they used it for all sorts of things, including sometimes to pay their soldiers. And if that soldier did not do their duties, this is where this phrase comes from, it was said they were not worth their salt. So if you've ever said that, that's where it comes from. So lots of uses for salt. If you go back and read the Old Testament, it's involved in covenants. It's used to purify waters. It's, it's all sorts of things. But the main purpose of salt was used in the, the process of curing meat, of preserving decay in meat. Because days of pre-refrigeration, you had to do something uh, to keep the bacteria from growing and bacteria need moisture. Salt absorbs moisture and that's what slows the decay in that, in that process. So salt is vital, it's valuable, and Jesus appeals to common sense here. He goes, look, if, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be worth anything. 
Luke's gospel, Luke's like, "Uh uh-uh, this is what I remember him saying. He says, it's actually, you wouldn't even make a pile of manure any better if you lose your saltiness. And so there's something in this which means it's to purify, it's to preserve, but it's gotta maintain its saltiness. And the translation for us is you have an identity, you are salt, you have a responsibility, you are to be a preserving agent that prevents decay, that enhances what is good, and you've gotta do it without losing your, your saltiness. And so if I think everybody around Jesus understands the purpose of salt in this day, and so he's just saying, look, just like that salt has to be rubbed into the meat and it's gotta be poured out on the food, you are going to have to get up close to make a difference. You're gonna have to get up close to prevent decay in this world. And we know that the world is prone to decay. It doesn't take us any minute at all on the internet or in a newspaper to realize the world is in decay. And then we talk about it. Like we're surprised every day we wake up, oh, is it still in decay? It sure is. Yeah, it's, it's going to be until the end. And yet we're being called to go in. One New Testament writer says, all the world has to offer is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I mean, so when you think about that and you think about selfishness and greed and bitterness, this hunger for power and money, a lust for unembodied sexual gratification, that's what the world has to offer to further decay and to destroy your soul. That's the best the world has to give. And so disciples then are agents of preventative care. We keep the meat from spoiling. Just by what we say, by the way that we are, our very presence, there's something about it that goes into these environments, into these spaces, into these relationships, and slows the process. Something's different about it because we are there. And so how does this happen? Um, First off, it does not happen because we hold picket signs and shout through bullhorns on street corners. Have you seen that? I've been in those environments. I've never once watched someone walk up to those people and say, tell me more. I just wanna know. It seems like it's a, I'd just love to know more about this religion religion of love. It also doesn't happen by making angry posts on Facebook. You know, like I am a Facebook patriot. Like, no, you could stop. Neither is it gonna happen if all the salt stays together and are like a little ecclesiastical salt shakers where it's like all Christians all all the time, all together, all just doing Christian things. Like you've gotta go. You gotta get out. We gotta take some risks, get uncomfortable. We see our model for this in Jesus. Jesus gets up close because you can't make a difference from a distance. He gets up close, he models this. And this is the way I wrote it. This is the way it came to my mind. Jesus locked eyes with the unlovable. He touched the hands of the untouchable. He smelled the scents of the outcast. He listened to the cries of the abandoned. He tasted meals with the condemned. He worked his way on purpose into the decay. That's, that was what Jesus did. And Jesus says, follow me. Do as I'm doing. And what happened as a result? People who didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about were nonetheless drawn to him and wanted to be around him. Even when he was saying really hard things that they would rather not obey, they still wanted to be near him because there was no way to ignore his compassion or kindness. Nothing could steal his joy You couldn't diminish the hope that he had. And so people wanted to know something about it. He poured himself out. And honestly, that's the principle that runs true through this whole thing, from salt to light, is that you are only as useful as you are used up. You are only as useful as you are used up. The salt's gotta be poured out. The wick has to burn for there to be light. 
which tells us this is not going to be easy. In fact, some of you all work in places that resemble a meat locker. Like you're, you, you go to work and you're like, this is where hope goes to die. Like this is it, this is what it is. And this is where I work. And it's like Sunday and you're like, oh, I'm gonna go tomorrow and I'm gonna do it again. And it's hard, it's really hard. If your boss is out of touch or even worse, incompetent, your coworkers gossip as naturally as breathing. And yet you have this opportunity to go into this place that is prone to decay and do something different, be something different. So that when conversations, you know, you, you get around conversations, they shift in tone. Spirits get lifted. There's more optimism around. Maybe even productivity goes up because as a follower of Jesus, you value excellence because you do all things to the glory of God. Which means you don't do the quiet quitting thing where it's like, oh, I don't like this part of my job, so I just won't do it. No, you do it all. Even if it's a tough environment. Um, for 10 years now, we've been taking our kids to the Johnson City Public Library over to the kids section, which if you haven't been there and you have children, you're failing, just letting you know. Um, but it's an incredible place. And, um, and so for years, I mean, those walk in and these ladies and, uh, have helped our, our kids find books. And they do it with a smile, even though I know it's like the system's probably tough. And it, you know, if you've been to the library, there's always a police presence. Like it can get a little rough every now and then. Um, but you just gotta be ready to throw down for books. And so we go. And um, last week, uh, I ran into somebody, uh, one of the librarians from the kids section here, and I, I made the connection with her, and, and I was like, oh my gosh, this, this girl, she has helped our kids probably find 1,200 books that they could have found if they really wanted to, but she's done it with a smile and with a pep in her step every single time. And just that little thing, I'm like, man, that's salt. Like that just, that is salt on an otherwise gloomy day and in a tough environment. Because there's some difficult situations that walk in those doors, and I love it. Others of you are in healthcare and the rainbows and butterflies, like, no, somebody, somebody killed the butterflies and the rainbows are gone, because it's healthcare. COVID, post-COVID, and yet there's nothing that's gonna stop you from being a joyful presence in that place, because there's nothing to keep you from looking in people's eyes and saying, this is someone whom Jesus died for. And even though I'd like to arrange a meeting with them in Jesus sometimes, I'm gonna love them and I'm gonna do my job well. And I'm gonna bring hope and breathe life into this decaying situation. Maybe you're a teacher, administrator, a coach, and you get to the end of a day, a week, a season, and you think, why did I want to do this noble profession? And it's just to remind you, you did it to make a difference. You did it to make a difference, not to please your superiors in Central or in Nashville or in DC, like you did it to make a difference in kids' lives. And just wear this for a minute, that within the first five weeks of school, teachers will have spent more time with those kids than they will spend in church all year. That's how important teachers are. And even if you're not a teacher, that's why it's important to bless teachers. My wife's a teacher, you can bless her. All right. If you're retired, what do you do to be salt? Like how do you get out of the comfort zone and go be salt, you know? You could be a lunch buddy at Mountain View like those kids would love to hear your stories that your kids have already heard a million times and are tired of. They'd love to hear them. You could go work in, in, in nursery and hold a baby. You could go work in preschool and you risk limb and life, but they need it. Like they need you there so younger parents can come and feast and, and hunger and thirst for righteousness. But it's not just work, it's relationships, friendships, marriage, mentorships. So kingdom citizens, we're the last ones to throw in the towel. 
Like we're willing to roll our sleeves up and, and just see what's salvageable in relationships. I think about often about the fact that Jesus was accused, these were the, the terms that were used against him. He was a friend of sinners, a glutton, a drunkard, um, all because of the relationships that he had. And yet he got in those relationships and engaged without becoming entrenched and losing his saltiness. He was able to be in those environments without becoming the environment. And I think about our, our region leaders who show up Monday after Monday after Monday, no matter what, to be salt in otherwise decaying situations. And I'm thankful for that. So you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. So Jesus says, go be salty. Don't be sassy. Don't be a stick in the mud. Don't be a separatist. Go be salt. Get up close and in person and preserve and enhance. And this is, by the way, so I've been asked this, like how do we do evangelism? This is how. This is what will open evangelistic doors these days. Because the world cares very little about the words we have to share if we do not start by showing that we actually care about them. The very first thing that people hear are what they see. This is true, and that's not changing anytime soon. So this is the, the idea that's carried into the next metaphor with light. And Jesus says again, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. So Jesus mixes metaphors a bit, but the point is the same, that light is meant to be seen. You don't light a lamp and just cover it up. And this is what would have come to mind in Jesus' day, simple structure, just a clay vessel, you got a handle, you got a place for the oil, and then you put the wick in. Um, and, and these were, you know, it was valuable. Like you don't, it's not like, you know, you, you do the dad move where you go out, you're like you're about to leave the house and you go turn all, every light off because kids are like, hey, let's turn them all on. It, it wasn't like that for these people. Like it took a lot to burn the wick, to, to have the oil in there. So they're not gonna waste it. It was significant. And so light, Jesus says, it has one purpose, there's other, other ramifications, but one purpose, and that's to illuminate. It's to break through and drive out the darkness. So he says, look, let it, let it shine. Like, be, be bright. That's what light does. Like, light knows no other thing to do than just shine. So do that. It's got this purpose to illuminate the darkness, to make places safer and more hospitable and more attractive, and that's the point he makes in verse 16, which is the only command, it's the only imperative in this whole section. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not because of your reputation, but because of who you represent. That's why we let our light shine. That's why we do the things that we've been called to do because the watching world will either dismiss us and be indifferent towards us because our faith makes no difference, or be drawn to us like light because we live out what we say we believe. And honestly, there is a sense in which the world proper is cheering for us to go dark. There is. I mean, if you're on any of the, the social media accounts, like when, when a pastor fails, when a church implodes, Christian has a affair, Christian you know, you know, skirts their taxes, whatever, there's something about that that satisfies the hearts and minds of those in the world because it reinforces their belief that our beliefs really don't make a difference. And so Jesus says we want to make a difference. 
we want to make a difference. We want the light to shine in dark places. Uh, as I'm thankful for the, the Kairos ministry um, and where we've got these guys that spend a weekend going into the prisons and talking to, to guys, spending time with guys in prayer and in teaching and study um, who would give anything. These guys would give anything to go back and just take out these 15 minutes of their life to make a different decision than they made. And Glenn Rennick came and spoke to us in our staff meeting um, one week and just shared story after story of the difference the gospel's making inside this dark place, inside these prisons. I mean, just hardened guys who are softened by the gospel and who have hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're getting in rooms and praying and crying with one another. Enemies praying and crying with one another for one another. Like only the gospel does that. And so it's encouraging to think of situations like that. I know from my own experience, it's hard sometimes. Like we, we all have those, those moments where we're tempted to cover the light. It's convenient to cover the light. We don't want people to know that we're Christian. Like, okay, oh the longer I can hold out them knowing, the better. Especially as a pastor. As soon as you say, well, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. Uh, okay, <laughs> that conversation just shifts. It goes a different way. And so maybe the guy or girl won't be interested if they know your standards. Your coach won't think you can lead because of your convictions. You won't get that shot at, um, at leading at work. You won't get the promotion if your boss knows that you're not really willing to cut corners, you're not willing to walk over people, that's a reality that some of you all face. And yet the world is searching for something and is stumbling in the dark is the way that the psalmist says it. The world's stumbling in the dark. They don't even know what they're tripping over. And if followers of Jesus won't be the light, people will never find what they're looking for, which is the gospel of Jesus. That's what the world is longing for. And so if you're in that place of hesitating, you're in that place of, man, I'm just, I've been covering it for a while now, I just wanna lovingly encourage you and challenge you to trust that to the Lord and just, just be light. Just see what happens. Just entrust it to the Lord, see what happens, see how he grows you in that. Uh, another group I wanna encourage, and I think this is really important. Are any here online who are harboring any sort of doomsday spirit? Because I, I get it, like you watch the news, you read the stories, you hear the things, and man, it is contagious. It is so easy to go to one another and be like, it's so bad, it's so bad, it's so bad. Yes, and it's going to stay bad. Like it's going to stay bad. And yet, we remind ourselves that the narrative is not done. That, that the story is one of God from the get-go breaking into darkness. And so just, just hear this, that at creation, it was God who spoke light into existence and drove out the darkness. It was God who said to Israel, you will be a light to the nations and nations will be blessed through you. It was Jesus who came as the light of the world into the darkness. And even though they missed him, the darkness has not overtaken the light. Paul says we shine like stars in the world. John reminds us that God is light and we walk in light as he is in the light. And Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. And it's all leading to this kingdom reality where darkness is no more. This is where it ends in Revelation 22. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. 
And, and so, yeah, we go out, we be salt, we be light, all right? As Christians are salty, as we are bright, all of that, like the darkness will still be there. The decay will still be there. But wherever we go, it's going to be a more hopeful situation. There will be more laughter. There will be more love. There will be more joy. There will be more forgiveness. There will be more patience as we bear with one another. Because wherever the light goes, darkness cannot stand it. And it will be pushed back. And it's all on the foundation of Jesus coming into this space, coming into the darkness himself. And he'll say, I'm the light of the world. And now you, you go be the light of the world because I'm just one person. Oh, but a body, a lot of people who can be light together and in the various sectors and spaces of our communities, and that's the way it's meant to be. And so we go and, and we salt and we shine and we do it faithfully because we know where it's headed in the end and so we don't lose hope. And so Jesus comes and he says, look, the gates of the kingdom are open. Any and all who wanna play, come play. Come do it. You don't have to be stuck in darkness. You don't have to be stuck in decay. Come be a part of the story of redemption because the moment you're redeemed, you are brought into the rescue part of that story. You become one who can go out and be a redeeming presence in those spaces. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. Be redeemed, but then go. Be salt, be light, and let people know what the kingdom tastes like. Let people know what it looks like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is, it is remarkable to think that at the dawn of time as we know it, as you spoke light in through the darkness and pushed it out, that you were already thinking of the day when Jesus as the light of the world would enter, when he would say that we are the light of the world, And so what I, I pray for a, a few groups of, of people here, I pray, Lord, for those who have never confessed faith in you. I pray that the light of the gospel would shine so brightly into those hearts and minds and imaginations that they would not help but be drawn to it. God, I pray for believers, for followers of Jesus who have been going strong for a while, who feel like they are poured out and used up constantly that they would be encouraged, that they would be, have their spirits lifted, be refueled and ready to go again. And then for those of us, Lord, who have for a while now just kind of kept the light to ourselves, I pray that you would embolden us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be who we've been created to be, to embrace and embody the reality that light only knows one thing to do and that we would shine because of you, that we would radiate your glory. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that foundation. 
We thank you that he called us, that he's equipped us, that he's gone before us. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.